The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, good morning everyone. <laughs> nice to see you all again. So let's carry on where we left off yesterday uh, in this uh, a uh, beautiful sutta called the Dveda Vitaka Sutta, the two kinds of thought. Uh, and uh, we have just looked at how to overcome the unwholesome kind of thoughts, yeah, the uh, sensory thoughts, the thoughts of ill will, the thoughts of uh, kind of callousness and uh, hardness. And now we're going to move on to the other side of the equation, how to kind of build up the good thoughts. Uh, and what happens after that, what goes happens beyond the good thinking as well. Huh? And so this is what uh, comes up now. So we are on page 18 in this, uh, this little notes here on the suttas. Uh, and um, the third, fourth paragraph from the top is where we are at. So let's just, uh, just get going. So then as I Meditate. This is the Buddha speaking, uh, talking about his life before his uh, before he became the Buddha. As I meditated, a diligent, keen, and resolute, uh, a thought of renunciation arose. I understood that this thought of renunciation has arisen in me. It doesn't lead to hurting myself, to hurting others, to hurting both. It nourishes wisdom, is on the side of freedom from anguish, and it leads to extinguishment, to Nibbana. If I were to keep on thinking and considering this all night, all day, all night and day, I see no danger that would come from that. Still, thinking and considering for too long would tire my body, and when the body is tired, the mind is stressed, and when the mind is stressed, it is far from stillness. So I still settled and unified and immersed my mind internally. Why is that? So that my mind would not be stressed. So here we have the opposite uh, kind of thoughts. Yeah. So before we had the thoughts of sensual pleasure or sensual indulgence or sensory objects or whatever you want to call it. And now we have the thought which kind of moves away from that sensory world. This is what I meant by a thought or renunciation. It's like giving up those things. In other words, understanding their danger, yeah, their, the problems with them, their impermanence, their unreliability, how you're going to have to give it all up sooner or later. And so you, uh, just by understanding that, it's as if the mind recoils a little bit from those things. And that recoiling, that moving away, is really what is meant here by a thought of renunciation. Yeah, you contemplate those similes that we were talking about before, and through that contemplation, the mind withdraws a little bit from that world. And that beginning, that withdrawing, is a movement towards renunciation. And... Uh, it culminates in the states of samadhi because you are giving up on those thoughts. Yeah, so this is uh, being diligent, keen, and resolute is actually just reflecting in this way. Yeah. And again, as I meditated, is not really, I don't really agree with this translation of uh, Bhante Sujato. I think here it just means in general, as I live, as I dwell, as I, you know, as I exist, as I practice, if you like. Yeah then uh, this, these things happen. Uh, 
So, uh, first of all, you understand what a thought of renunciation is, what it means, yeah? And then uh, you understand also that this does not lead to suffering, one's own suffering, the suffering of others, or the suffering of both. Uh, thoughts of renunciation, again, remember this is a, about the internal world, uh, in the external world, if we compete over the resources, uh, if we keep uh, compete over the sensory objects of the world, uh, that competition will always lead to some degree of friction, degree of uh, um, ill will, perhaps, and uh, even down the track, even uh, violence, perhaps, as a consequence of that. But when the, the idea of uh, renunciation is the opposite of that, uh, the giving up of that external world, moving inwards. Uh, and of course, as such, it cannot really lead to friction. Uh, it leads to the opposite. Uh, so for that reason, uh, there is no problem uh, concerned with this kind of thinking. Uh, it nourishes wisdom. Uh, yeah, it moves away from wisdom. Uh, sorry, it moves towards wisdom. Uh, uh, panya buddhika buddha in pali means to increase yeah so literally it it is the it increases wisdom this kind of thought uh, why does it increase wisdom why is renunciation necessary to increase wisdom this is a very important point to understand i i always found that the more you understand what is going on uh, the more powerful your confidence is in these teachings uh, why does renunciation increase wisdom and again, it has this, this idea of a vested interest that uh, that this is about. Yeah, if you are, if you have thoughts of sensory indulgence or attraction or desire for the sensory objects of the world, if you have a vested interest in that, your mind is biased by definition. Uh, you think that this is important because you are attached to it. That attachment leads to a distortion of the mind. Uh, it's very obvious when you think about it. Uh, yeah, when you are hungry, the food looks really nice, but when you're not hungry, it doesn't. It's a vested interest in the object. Uh, or if it is your child or your family member, then you really care about what happens to them. Uh, but if it is someone else's, you kind of shrug your shoulders, it doesn't matter quite so much. Uh, you still have compassion, but it's a different kind of compassion that you have if it's a family member or if it is another person. Uh, that is the attachment that comes with it. Uh, you want your child to do well at school because it's my child. It reflects on me. Yeah, if my child does uh, bad at school, I am. You know, I look bad as well. So it's a bit of self-interest there in how your child, your family members, uh, live. Yeah, that's called vested interest. Uh, you're not neutral about how they are. Uh, to be neutral is like seeing a person as a friend or as anyone else in society. Uh, you still care about them, but in a very diff in a different way. Yeah. You care about people here, whether they're hurt or not, obviously, but not in the same way as you care for a family member, because the attachment isn't there in the same way. So there's a vested interest there that distorts your outlook. It does not enable you to see clearly. It doesn't allow your mind to get that distance and to see things as they actually are. So renunciation here just means moving away from that attachment to the sensory world moving away from that desire for those objects, and the mind cools down. Uh, the mind gains stability, gains distance, gains perspective uh, that allows you to see things clearly, and that is the source of wisdom. Uh, this is a very important point to understand, because once you get this, uh, you understand why uh, too much living in that sensory world is not really compatible with uh, 
the you know the deep wisdom of the monastic or not the monastic of the spiritual path um and uh, so there is a a tension there between uh, the worldly th- the worldly things uh, and the things of the spiritual path uh, you can have you can't have both fully yeah you need to let gradually need to let go of a little bit of the one to gain more of the other uh, you can still enjoy both to some extent, but as you move more towards the spiritual side of things, uh, you move more away from the worldly things. There's a gradual decrease of one and increase of the other uh, as you practice the spiritual path. Uh, you can see why now, hopefully, to some extent, why that has to be the case. So, yeah, it's on the side of wisdom. It nourishes wisdom. It's, I quite like that. It's a nice translation. It, it is on the side of freedom from anguish. Yeah, there's less anguish in the world when you move away from the sensory realm. It's very fascinating. We try to find freedom in sensory world. We try to find happiness in that realm, but actually, there is no such thing in that realm. It is fraught with anguish, fraught with problems, fraught with anxiety, and you have to move away from it to actually find that liberation from that suffering. <clears throat> and it leads to nibbana. It leads to extinguishment down the track. Yeah, yeah? what is nibbana? It is the highest happiness. It is the move. It is the ending of all suffering. So it's kind of worthwhile. Yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, nibbana. <laughs> it may not, may not sound like it's a great thing, extinguishment. But the, remember to. Sometimes you have to look at these things from the right perspective. Uh, the end of suffering. Yeah, that's kind of a, a good perspective to remember this from her. Uh. So that is um, the thoughts of renunciation, and then comes the the very interesting uh, other part here, yeah. Uh, and he says, if if I were to th- keep on thinking and considering, uh, this is anu vitaketi vitaka vichara, the same words that are uh, used in the suttas for thinking and considering. If I were to think and consider this all night, all day, all night and day, uh, I see no danger that would come from this. Uh, in other words, you're not making any bad karma. You're not creating any suffering with these kind of thoughts. There's no bad consequences in the long run, if you, even if you think about it all the time. And then he thinks, still, thinking and considering for too long would tire my body. And when the body is tired, the mind is stressed. Yeah. So the the idea here is that when you... Uh, think too much if there's too much activity of the mind uh, eventually it tires you out uh, and the word body here is very interesting because here it does not mean really just the physical body because the tiredness from thinking really happens in the is a mental thing yeah it is something that it is like the, a, a wider idea of the body that also includes like uh, almost like your personality in a sense your person gets tired, not just the physical body, but also what is called the body of the mind itself. Yeah, so it's like a broader idea of tiredness. So too much thinking, too much movement of the mind, eventually it tires you out. And so what you do then, yeah, and when the body is tired, the mind is stressed. The mind here is like almost like the underlying consciousness. It is that very the most simple aspect of the mind, yeah, which is just the awareness itself, that too gets disturbed. You can no longer be still, you can no longer be relaxed because your, men- your mental content is agitated yeah, by all the thinking and things. So then you still the mind. So what, what is important in all of this? 
is to understand that the spiritual path, again, is gradual. Uh, and you should always remember that. It's such an important point, and people often forget this. Uh, so when we practice the spiritual life, you always have to start with the course things you start with the negative mental states yeah you have these thoughts of sensual pleasures you have the thoughts of ill will the thoughts of callousness or harshness that is the first thing you have to deal with you can't sit down and meditate straight away yeah meditation happens here after after purifying the mind that's when meditation happens so you start with that and then when your mind is relatively pure you have good thoughts, you're thinking in the right way, you have an idea of renouncing that world, an idea of kindness and compassion for the world, yeah? Then, when those things are established, at least fairly well, not 100%, because nothing is ever 100%, but reasonably well, then meditation becomes possible. And this, so that sequence is very important, uh, yeah? So if you sit down and you are in a bad mood, yeah, you're rotten mood one day. <laughs> Sometimes that happens to everyone, yeah? You wake up and you, so, I don't know, maybe you had a bad dream or something, yeah? And then you try to sit down, or may, may all beings be happy and well, it's not going to work, yeah? <laughs> First of all, you have to use your reflection to overcome that negative negativity you may have, or that upset you have with somebody or whatever it is. Uh, then, when you overcome that negativity, then you can meditate. So this idea of developing is true both for the kind of big picture of things, how you develop over the long period of time in your life, but also how you develop within a particular meditation session. Yeah, so both long-term and the short-term. So in the long-term, big picture of your life, you gradually overcome these defilements in a general sense, but then in a specific time period, like when you uh, meditate as well, you understand your mental content, what you need to do first, uh, and then you develop your mind in the right way within that meditation session. So if you do feel a bit uh, grumpy or whatever, uh, yeah, uh, occasionally, then instead of sitting down trying to watch your breath, go for a little bit of a walk, do some walking meditation, uh, reflect a little bit, what's going on here? Uh, allow that grumpiness to fade away here. Uh, use your reflection to help you if you can. Uh, then when you feel more at ease, more relaxed, then come back in here. Uh, then sit down yeah, and try to watch your breath or do the metta meditation or whatever. Uh, you can see how structured this is, yeah, and that structure matters. Uh, there's a lot of information in this sutta, uh, and it's actually quite hard to straight away see what is there. Uh, you have to kind of get accustomed to how the suttas work. Uh, it is all gradual. It is all, uh, uh, you know, just like the Noble Eightfold Path, etc. It all has a particular sequence to it. Uh, sequence is very important in this suttas. Uh. So, uh, all of this thinking and, and considering, it helps you to get out of the defilements, but then eventually they become a problem too, and it disturbs the mind, it disturbs this, the body. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it is fascinating how the word body is so wide in the, the Pali language. It doesn't just mean physical body, it means like you're much more than that. And I, And when you think about it, I think the the kind of ideas that uh, we have that uh, separates out the physical body from the mind. I don't quite have that idea in, in the Pali language or in, in Buddhism. The body is not really as separable from the mind as we, the way we use it in contemporary language. 
Yeah, the body is just one perception among many perceptions. Uh, the body is just one feeling among many feelings. Uh, yeah, so in a sense, the body is just a. It, it's not really limited from the mind uh, in quite the way that we tend to think about it very often. Uh, mind, the body is almost like an extension of the mental content. How do you know the body is there? Well, we know the body is there through perception. Uh, and those perceptions are mental things, yeah? The kind of feelings of the body or the vision of the body. That's how we know it's there. It's just an expansion, really, an extension of the mental content anyway, yeah? So I think that is probably where the Pali is coming from. They don't have that kind of clear separation. So uh, the mind is stressed. That's quite a nice translation. The unusual Pali word, uhanati, and it's... Um, it uh, means something like stressed or vexed or, you know, something like that. Uh, and it's far from stillness. When the mind is stressed, it means that it is kind of unstable and uh, not really able to uh, focus properly. So then what do you do? You still, you settle, uh, you unify and immerse the mind internally. That's what the Buddha does here. Uh, so you give yourself, you... Uh, you allow yourself to really relax, really to bring the mind together. And these four words here are very important Pali words that really signify deep samadhis. They specifically signify the jhana states. Yeah? When you see these words, they almost always mean, they refer to the jhana, jhana states. So we'll see that in a second. Huh? Why is that? So that my mind would not be stressed. So this is the... Um, Ideal, yeah, the ideal is, this is why we come back to meditation regularly, to ideal is to kind of relax, to de-stress. This is sort of the purpose of meditation. And of course, the deeper your meditation is, the more you de-stress, the more relaxed you are. Yeah, so again, this is idea that meditation is for the purpose of a large part to enjoy, yeah, to enrich our life. And this is one of the I think one of the tragedies of so much of the modern meditation movement is that a meditation enriching our life. It becomes another chore that you have to do and you have to suffer as you meditate because meditation is serious business and if you don't suffer, you don't get insight into the real reality of life which is tough and suffering and really harsh. But no, that is not the point. If you look at meditation the way it is explained in the suttas, it is always a happy process. Yeah? And we'll have a look at this much later on. And here it is again. It is to de-stress you. Yeah? It is to chill out. It is to enjoy. The spiritual path is to, supposed to be something that lifts you up, enriches your life, make your life better. Not another kind of torture. There's not enough torture in life already here. I, you know, we all have so many problems in life. It's not as if we need to add another problem on top of everything else. And I would say that if the spiritual path does not enrich your life, then it's kind of pointless. The whole point is to enrich you. It's not as if you suffer and suffer and suffer, and one day you break through to Nibbana, and then when you break through to Nibbana, you have the ultimate bliss. It's not like that. The bliss is a gradually emerging. The path should reflect the result, uh, to some extent, the result is Nibbana, the highest happiness. The path should reflect that. Uh, otherwise, it's not leading to that, that kind of result. Uh. So look at it. If you find it's too much, too hard, uh, the path, the suffer is too much suffering, then ask yourself if there's something you can do differently uh, to increase the uh, enjoyment of the practice. Uh. Yeah, that is, that is such an uh, important point. Uh. 
Some people don't enjoy the meditation. Huh? So if you don't enjoy your meditation, huh, try to adjust it a little bit. Do a little bit less. Ask yourself if you're doing it at the right time. Ask yourself if you need more guidance during your meditation. Ask yourself all of these questions so you can kind of adjust it in a positive way. Don't become a creature of habit. I must meditate. I'm a Buddhist. If I don't meditate, I'm a bad Buddhist. Yeah. Please don't think like that, because uh, it's got nothing to do with that. It's about being honest and clear about what works. Sometimes we get into these uh, ideas, yeah, and we, we kind of block ourselves from what is uh, suitable because of that. Uh, if, however, we, you do enjoy your meditation, then congratulations. It's marvelous, uh, and use it as a tool to enhance the quality of your life. So that is what happens, yeah. You. Uh, still the mind and you enter some wonderful and marvelous qualities as a consequence and then the same thing happens with uh, the other kinds of good thoughts yeah and the buddha says and as i meditated uh, diligent keen and resolute uh, a thought of goodwill this is the avyapada the non ill will thought which uh, uh, is really goodwill so goodwill would then be metta usually yeah, a thought of harmlessness, or I would prefer a, a thought of compassion there, because it's the opposite of cruelty, the opposite of um, the coldness of heart, the opposite of being inconsiderate, which to me really is compassion. Huh? So I think compassion to me is a uh, is better. Huh? I understood this thought of goodwill or this thought of compassion has arisen in me. Huh? It doesn't lead to hurting myself, uh, hurting others, or hurting both. Huh? Yeah, obviously, if you have goodwill and compassion, it doesn't really lead to anything bad. It nourishes wisdom. It's on the side of freedom from anguish. It leads to extinguishment. And again, remember here that the idea that ill will or anger is another of the distortions of the mind. When you have ill will, you don't see things clearly at all. You have a distorted outlook. It's like you have a vested interest in harming someone almost. And uh, it's very useful to think that sometimes when you have a little bit of ill will uh, and you may say something to the other, another person uh, and then afterwards you regret it. Uh, yeah. Why do you regret it? And the reason is because when you come out of that ill will, that's when you see clearly. Uh, but during the ill will, you couldn't see what was going on. And because of that, you acted in a stupid way. Yeah, It shows you that during ill will, the mind is distorted. Because afterwards, we regret it. That means that afterwards, when the mind is clear, that is when we see clearly. So this is one of those things that you can always use in your life to decide whether you are going to make a good decision or not, uh, yeah, whether you're going to do the right thing or not, uh, is check out your mental state first of all. Uh, if your mental state is a pure one, uh, then you can usually make good decisions. Should I tell this person what I think or should I not? Well, ask yourself, where are you coming from? Uh, why do you want to tell that person? Uh, do you have the other person's best interest at heart? Do you have your own best uh, interest at heart? Uh, or is there some defilement underlying there driving you to do these things? Uh, and if there is a defilement underlying it, then it's always going to be problematic. Yeah. This is a very useful general principle to make any decision in life. Uh, do you have clarity? Are you coming from goodwill? Are you coming from the good things? Then you know that you are going to very likely to make good decisions. 
And they don't have to be rational decisions, they can be intuitive decisions. If your mind is clear, you're almost like you know automatically what is right and what is wrong, and then you can follow the right path easily. So, yeah, so again, you are, it nourishes wisdom because you don't have that vested interest when you have metta. Metta here, the thought of goodwill, is not the attached kind of metta. It's not that you are attached to other beings. It's more like beings in general. You just have goodwill towards them, yeah? Anyone, even people you don't know, people just made up in your mind, like all the beings to the north, yeah, over here. You have no idea who they are, faceless people, and yet you have goodwill towards them. That is kind of the metta we're talking about here, not the metta of attachment. Once you have attachment, then there will be vested interest again, and that will be a problem. So, yeah, and it leads to freedom from anguish. There's no anguish when you have these feelings, and they lead to extinguishment. And of course, the Buddha is the primary exponent of compassion, and he dwells in that great karuna, great compassion towards all living beings. Still, you don't want to think about this all the time. You use the compassion and the metta, you can use these thoughts, and they can give rise to some beautiful feelings inside. And then you use that as the basis for your meditation, to still the mind. And you still the mind on the feeling, yeah, and you let go of the thought. The thought is the movement of the mind. The feeling is something much more stable, it's something which is there. It is not something that, it may move a little bit, but... As you focus on it, it becomes more and more powerful and more and more still, and you just focus on the actual feeling. Yeah? And that is like the metta transforming from a thought, from an intention, from a using of your mind into just a pure feeling, yeah? and then the focus on the feeling itself. Yeah? This, is, this is a way of thinking about this, uh, what you're doing here. Yeah, so again, you uh, uh, because too much thinking, disturbs the mind or stresses the mind, then you uh, let go of that thinking and you settle, unify, immerse the mind internally. Why is that? So that mind would not be stressed. And um, what we're talking about here, when the Buddha-to-be says not be stressed, it is like a different level of non-stress altogether, yeah? He's not talking about the ordinary stress of the world. He's talking about the mind which is maybe slightly dull or a little bit restless or something like that. Yeah, The mind which is not perfectly settled. He's talking about very, very subtle degrees of stress here. The stress that most people have, of course, it is bad. Yeah, But this is kind of stress at a... At a, you know, to a very refined degree here, and all of that stress should be given given up, so that the mind becomes bright and pure, and ready to be used for insight, which is really what we are searching, looking for. Ultimately, is insight, understanding the nature of reality. Here, so then the Buddha goes on again. There, this is what we saw before. Uh, whatever a mendicant frequently thinks about and considers, or anyone uh, frequently thinks about and considers, becomes their heart's inclination. Uh, if they often think about and consider thoughts of uh, giving up or renunciation, they've given up the sensory inclination of the mind to cultivate the thought of renunciation. Uh, the mind inclines to thoughts of renunciation, uh, and they often think about 
when oh, sorry, if they often think about and consider thoughts of goodwill, the mind inclined to thoughts of goodwill. If they often think about and consider thoughts of harmlessness, the mind inclines towards thoughts of uh, compassion. So uh, again, this idea of making this the inclination of the mind, where your mind tends to go unless there is a disturbance. Uh, yeah, And this is uh, also the thing that gives rise to a good rebirth as well. Yeah, Because uh, the point here is that if your mind inclines in a certain way, uh, then, then when you are on your deathbed, yeah, you know that you're about to pass away, uh, then the mind will naturally go there because this is already the inclination of the mind. It's one of the things you see in the suttas. The Buddha says that if you're going to get reborn in a certain place, it's always the inclination of the mind that decides that rebirth. What that means is that you have developed good qualities in this life. Those good qualities are with you. Your mind inclines towards that. And then when you die, the mind inclines towards those things. And then, of course, your mind is settled in that in your next life, which is the definition of a good rebirth. So this is how these things uh, kind of, yeah, your your mind state now is what decides where you go afterwards, uh, the inclination of the mind. So here you have the inclination of the mind, yeah, towards all of these good things. uh, It's great, isn't it? Uh, You can't avoid them. uh, You can't avoid goodwill. You can't avoid uh, compassion uh, because that is where your mind likes to hang out and where it kind of naturally goes. uh, your freight train, your super tanker is now heading in a certain direction. Uh, the momentum is very strong, uh, and you can't really avoid uh, uh, going in that direction, uh, which is good news. Uh. And then again, we have this uh, beautiful simile uh, that uh, summarizes what is going on here. Uh. Suppose it's the last month of summer uh, when all the crops have been gathered into the neighborhood of a village. Uh, and a cowherd must take care of the cattle. While at the root or a foot of a tree or in the open, he need only be mindful that the cattle are there. In the same way, I needed only be mindful that those things were present, those qualities were present. Yeah, the cattle heard the herds. Uh, the cattle herder, he can or cow herd, he can just chill at the root of a tree, uh, relax. Yeah, seeing the cattle, the cattle are not doing anything wrong. The cattle have been well tamed. He have poked them this way and that way. If you remember the simile from before, uh, and because he has poked them in the right way, the cattle have become obedient, uh, good cattle, uh, not greedy cattle, but kind of cool cattle, just grazing in the right place and uh, doing the right thing. Yeah. Nice cows, nice mind. The mind has been well trained. Uh, the mind doesn't stray into the wrong field, the Mara's realm, yeah, the, the realm of temptation. Yay, sensual pleasures. Uh, actually, they are painful, and you have understood that once and for all. Uh, and then all you have to do is to be mindful. Uh, and that's why this is, gets very easy at this point. Uh, this is why the more trained your mind is, the easier things are. Uh, you don't have to poke anymore. You don't have to apply your wisdom quite as much as before uh, because now it is happening automatically. Uh, you can sit back and you can be mindful. Uh, and that is exactly where meditation becomes possible. Yeah? If there's too much movement of the mind, you have to poke your mind too much. Uh, it's too much movement for really meditation to work properly. Uh, but when the good qualities are settled, uh, you can sit back, you can just relax and just be aware. Mindfulness is present. Uh, and then, of course, meditation starts to work. Uh, 
the breath is there and all you have to do is just to kind of hang out with the breath yeah no need to control it uh, no need to do anything yeah? you just relax into the meditation uh. this is the beautiful kind of idea of this path it becomes very simple uh, very easy uh, very uh, satisfactory if you like yeah? So you are just mindful that the good qualities are there and if uh, the occasional bad quality comes into that picture, of course, then you have to deal with it as we have seen already. Huh? Otherwise, you're just mindful. Huh? And uh, then, yeah, as you do this, uh, the Buddha-to-be, uh, he says uh, here, he has, my energy was roused up and unflagging here. My mindfulness was established and lucid uh, my body was tranquil and undisturbed, and my mind was stilled. So this is uh, what happens yeah, when you think in this right way and you overcome the negative thoughts. Uh, a negative mind is often a mind that is lacking in energy. Yeah? You know that if your mind is really negative, you get tired and you get drowsy, and that's kind of the nature of negative mind. Negative people are often people with very little energy. Whereas positive people have a lot of energy, they tend to have. Energy comes with a positive development of the mind. Yeah? And you see that some of the people who are most impressive in the world in terms of development and insight, who might be the arahants and stream mentors of the world, they're usually very energetic people. And even if their body is falling apart, yeah, and we know some of those monks whose bodies are kind of a bit getting a bit, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say, a little, little bit not kind of so good anymore. Yeah? Uh, still, their mind is bright and powerful, and this is kind of amazing. You, I remember going to see Ajahn Ganha yeah, in Thailand, and he's kind of I mentioned him before, yeah. and he is this very super duper bright person, yeah, but his body barely functions. He can barely walk. Yeah, he's not that old, but I think he has abused his body really badly because he doesn't really care about his body. That's the reality of it. Yeah. So he has this. He he lives on the first floor and on the bottom, on the ground level. That's kind of where he meets people and he hangs out and he chats with people and he's always always smiling and always so kind. But to go up to the first floor where he lives, he he, he can't really walk the stairs. There's only one flight of stairs. So he has this little chair on a rail and he sits down on his chair and the chair kind of takes him up this rail. Yeah. And he can't even walk down the stairs. So even he sits on this chair on the way down as well. Eh? So his body is like a bit of a wreck, to be honest. Eh? But uh, his mind is just so powerful and so beautiful. Yeah, and you can see that. And he, he just sits in meditation in the morning for a while, brightens up his mind. Eh? And the rest of the day, he's like the sun, the sun walking among people, eh? radiant and bright. Eh? It's kind of amazing when you see that. Eh? It's hard to really... Eh, understand how people can be quite so bright uh, unless they have some very special qualities that they have built up yeah you st really start to get this feeling that there are special people in the world uh, when you see these things uh. so this is what is happening here yeah when you are reducing your own defilements uh, your energy comes up uh, the mental energy is aroused uh, because that's what happens when the mind is bright and full of good qualities uh. And mindfulness is established, yeah? Again, the point is that the defilements of the mind is what takes you, take you out of the present moment. Uh, if you desire too much, you think about the future. If you have too much ill will, you tend to think about the past. Uh, 
Yeah, and uh, the less you have of these defilements, the more you are in the present, uh, and your mind is here and aware of what is going on. Uh, then it becomes possible to watch the breath. If your mind is in the future and the past, you can't really watch the breath. At least not this breath. You maybe watch some other breath in the future and the past, but not <laughs> not the present breath. And of course, the present breath is the one you want to watch, uh, not some fantasy breath. So your mindfulness becomes strong. Your energy is strong. You can see how attractive this is. Yeah, you're sitting down, closing your eyes. You feel energized. You are present. Yeah, these are very good positive qualities happening and they come about in this way uh, your body is tranquil and undisturbed uh, it is the defilements that give rise to restlessness uh, and makes your mind and your body agitated uh, unpleasant uh, you can't really relax properly yeah at this point everything settles down uh, and when everything settles down in this way the mind itself becomes stilled and peaceful uh. So this is what happens, yeah? It kind of, it's all quite logical. And um, even on paper is logical, but it becomes even more logical if you do this for yourself and you see how it actually works. Because it actually, that's kind of the proof of the pudding, yeah? You have to do it and actually see that it works. What happens next? And what happens next is the following here. Quite secluded from sensual pleasures, or I should really say, quite secluded from the sensory realm, yeah, the sensory world, uh, secluded from unskillful qualities. Uh, I entered and remained in the first absorption, the first jhana, which has rapture and bliss born of seclusion uh, while placing the mind and keeping it connected. Uh, this is again. But Ajahn Sujato's translation, yeah, so quiet here means, really means fully, yeah, fully secluded from the uh, sensory world. Quiet here is like an English way of expressing completely, really, that's what it really means in this con context. So uh, completely, fully secluded from the sensory world. Viviceva kamehi. It's, it's not... When you say secluded from sensual pleasures, it's not really all that clear exactly what is meant. But if you say fully secluded from the sensory world, it's pretty obvious what's going on. That's a much better translation because it becomes very obvious what is happening here. Secluded from unwholesome or unskillful qualities. These are like the five hindrances. Yeah, At this point, there's no more unwholesome qualities in the mind. Uh, no desire, sensory desire, no ill will, nothing that is possi can possibly take you out of the present moment. Uh, your mind is 100% in the present moment. Uh, there's not this smidgen of desire there. If there was a smidgen of desire, you would not be fully in the present moment. Uh, so this is the power of this. This is why you have to overcome those five hindrances absolutely fully. Because if you haven't, uh, it's going to be... the uh, mindfulness is going to be smeared, smeared out, not fully stable in the present. Uh, the desire kind of draws it out into slightly into the future or the past. Uh, so the five hindrances had to be completely overcome. Uh, and then at that point, you enter and remain in the first absorption, the first jhana. Yeah? We have gone beyond the sensory world absolutely for the first time enter a different reality this is what samadhi is a different reality a different world that is completely different from anything you have seen before and this is a kind of a real eye-opener 
to see that this is even possible. The majority of people have no idea that this can even be done. Yeah, And let alone that this is extremely blissful, an extraordinarily happy state. This is kind of what uh, what this is about. And that's why it says it has a rapture and bliss born of seclusion. Vivekaja Pittisukha is the Pali there. And uh, so this is uh, astonishing. And yeah, this is why people from other uh, spiritual traditions or other religions, if you like, why when they come to these kind of things, they think they have found God because it is so powerful. Uh, you have left the ordinary world behind and you have entered something completely new dimension, which is utterly blissful and happy. Uh, of course, you would think that is God. Why not? Uh, it's just beyond your wildest dream that this is even possible to do here. Uh. And then they have this strange thing at the end here, placing the mind and keeping it connected. This is uh, uh, Ajahn Sudato's uh, translation for Savitaka, Savichara, having Vitaka, having Vichara. And these things normally mean the movement of the mind or the examination using the mind. But in this case, it just means the very final movement, uh, yeah, the very refined movement that happens within this particular state. Uh, so it's a very simple thing. It's got nothing to do with what you ordinarily think of as a thought. It's just a very gentle movement of the mind within the state itself. So this is when you enter the first jhana. Then what happens after that? I put some dots in there. Yeah, I haven't done that on purpose just to kind of deceive you or anything like that. I, I put it in there just because I didn't want to read out everything. It's not because I'm lazy. It's just because I sometimes you do too much yes i didn't want to do too much but what comes after that is the second jhana even more blissful even more powerful third jhana the highest bliss that's possible to experience in samsaric existence happens in the third jhana then the fourth jhana goes beyond even that what can be beyond the highest bliss that's possible to experience well it's equanimity which is kind of really strange, right, when you think about it. But that's actually how the, this path works, and that equanimity is more blissful than bliss. Uh, then, uh, from that, you then go into the recollection of the past lives. Uh, then you have the understanding, the kamma, how your actions affect your rebirth. Uh, and lastly, the last thing of all, is then the uh, becoming the arahant, uh, understanding the Four Noble Truths, having the full insight into the nature of reality, is the very last thing. Uh, and then... Uh, yeah, that's kind of the end of the Buddhist path. Uh, it's pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? Uh, You've got to say, it's pretty awesome, the Buddhist path. Uh, so much bliss, so much happiness, and with that bliss and happiness comes all of these insights into the nature of reality. You see what is truly going on. Uh, what is not to like about this? This is just really uh, uh, the super-duper Buddhist path. Uh, and uh, at the end of all this, uh, when you come to the Buddhist end of the Buddhist path, then the Buddha, on top of all of this, he then adds a couple of beautiful similes that I will have a look at now at the end of this sutta. So let's have a look at those similes. Um, so, suppose that in a forest wilderness uh, there was a great expanse of low-lying marshes uh, and a large herd of deer lived nearby. Then along comes a person who wants to harm, injure, and threaten them. They close off the safe, secure path that leads to happiness and open the wrong path that leads to dukkha. There they plant domesticated male and female deer 
as decoys, so that in due course the herd of deer would fall into ruin and disaster. Then along comes a person who wants to help keep the herd of deer safe. They open up the safe, secure path that leads to happiness and closes off the wrong path. They get rid of the decoys so that in due course that herd of deer would grow, increase and mature. I have made up this simile to make a point. This is what it means. An expanse of low-lying marshes is a term for sensual pleasures, yeah, or the sensory realm, if you like. Yeah, so this deer of herd, it gets, it lives nearby this marsh, and obviously the point is that you get trapped in that marsh. And I don't know if you have ever walked in the marsh. Australia is not famous for for the marshes, but the country where I come from is full of these marshes and swamps. Yeah, in the forest, and it's boggy and it's wet. And you, when you walk into them, them you sink into it and you get stuck. Yeah, it's hard to extract yourself from the marsh. And if it is a really bad marsh, you kind of get almost submerged in these things, and you have to fight your way out of these things. And in places like Norway, they're everywhere. Yeah, you walk into the forest and you get these kind of swamps and you have to steer clear of them because they are really, not, not, I wouldn't say they're dangerous, but they are certainly, you tend to get stuck in them. And this is precisely the nature of sensual pleasures. They are really sticky. Yeah. Why are they so sticky? Because they appear so nice. Yeah. Who can fault nice food? Who can fault nice relationships, nice things in the world? It all seems so beautiful and shiny and nice. And we're not able to see the downside. And the downside, and this is why they get so sticky, precisely because of that. It seems so wonderful. And once you get trapped in those things, it's actually very hard to extricate yourself from that world. In part, because we don't know anything else. We don't understand that there is an alternative reality. The reality we have just been talking about, yeah, with the deep meditation and all of that. Uh, and uh, not only is it hard to extricate yourself from those marsh- marshes, uh, but they are the fetter. Uh, they are the rope that ties you to existence. Uh, why? Well, because as long as you have all of those desires in the sensory world it's as if you're always looking to the future always desiring more remember craving craving is intimately connected with the sensory world all the objects of the sensory world we crave for them and craving is basically a movement towards the future it's a place we want to be it is a lack of staying in the present moment it is as if we are projecting ourselves into some kind of future state and that projection is a continuation of samsaric existence, uh, yeah, driving us on from life to life, from birth to birth. Uh. So it's very sticky. Not only is it sticky, but it ties you to existence. Uh, and these are the number one thing that ensures uh, that you will keep on going in, in samsara for a long, long time in the future, unless you deal with these kind of things. Uh. This is why it is called a low-lying marsh. You will notice it is a low, it is not a high-lying marsh, it's a low-lying marsh, yeah? There is a reason for that, because it is the happiness and pleasure got that you get in this marsh, actually it is quite inferior to the happiness and pleasures you get on the spiritual path. It is sticky, and it is inferior, and it ties you to samsara, and it leads to endless suffering in the future. Yeah, so we we see it as happy, but actually that is a very biased and un, 
uh, and not really correct way of looking at these things. Uh, large herd of deer is a term for sentient beings. Uh, sentient beings means any being. It's a very broad term. I think the Pali word is probably satta. I haven't looked it up, but I think it's satta. Satta just means any being. Yeah, it can mean human beings. It can mean um, animals. It can mean ghosts. It can mean devas, heavenly beings. The heavenly beings are just as trapped in samsara as we are. It means everything, really. Uh, large herd of deer. We all tend to be trapped by these uh, low-lying marsh of sensual pleasures. Uh, the person who wants to harm and injure and threaten them is a term for Mara, the wicked one. Pa papima, papima, sometimes translated as the evil one. And this was a question we had the other day. Is Mara, is it a real person or a real being? And where does Mara hang out? Where does Mara live? And all of these kind of things. And these are kind of part of Buddhist mythology in a sense. But the main thing about Mara, whether Mara is a real being or not, and probably you could argue that there are beings that are a bit like Mara. Uh, yeah? Even in this life, we find a few Maras around uh, in the human realm. Uh, <laughs> kind of dodgy characters who kind of do dodgy stuff and who kind of tempt us or whatever. But Mara really, most of all, it is a term for our own inner Mara. Yeah, the inner tempter who says, yeah, do that, go for it. It's not going to harm you. Yeah, it's not going to. You can still practice meditation afterwards, right? And just enjoy a bit now. Yeah, that person needs to be told off. Go for it. Yeah, you, you can balance <laughs> these kind of things. The inner voice that tells you to do things that you shouldn't really do. Uh, and that inner voice is kind of fighting with the voice of a reason of the spiritual path. And they kind of, you try to increase the other one while reducing the other one. That's the real Mara. That is the Mara we should worry about. The Mara as an external being is kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of irrelevant. Yeah, it doesn't really matter so much. It is more, I, I understand that mostly to be a metaphor uh, uh, for our inner qualities and in the, sometimes in the surah it's very clear that it is a metaphor yeah sometimes it's very obvious uh, other times it's a bit more ambiguous so, so uh, we try to avoid the mara and then the wrong path is a term for the wrong eightfold path uh, yeah in other words you do everything wrong you do the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing yeah? wrong view wrong thought wrong speech wrong action wrong livelihood wrong effort wrong mindfulness and wrong immersion here uh, wrong samadhi wrong stillness if you like everything is wrong uh, and uh, of course if everything is wrong even if one of them is wrong you're gonna, not going to make it to the end uh, let alone if all eight are wrong then you are in serious trouble here uh. so um, all eight have to be right to be able to reach the end of the uh, <coughs> the uh, spiritual practice uh. a domesticated male deer uh, is a term for greed and relishing. Yeah. So uh, uh, the idea is again this idea of maybe the tempter, yeah, the tempting male deers out there, and you kind of the whole herd kind of goes after this this male deer. And then you have the female deer afterwards, uh, just to so they are there, and you are tempted by these things, and you follow after this deer. They are already in the marsh, yeah, leading you astray, yeah, and. Um, uh, so, and these two terms that are here used for these deer, yeah, the uh, greed for the male deer and ignorance for the female deer, uh, 
these are the two things that really are the problem in samsara. You know, often the Buddha says that we are blinded by ignorance. We are, we are fettered by craving and blinded by ignorance. Yeah. So these are the two things that make things impossible often to move forward. Ignorance makes you blind. You're walking in darkness. Maybe ignorance is the wrong word. Delusion, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we are blinded by it. We don't know what's going on. Uh, and because we don't know what's going on, we're fumbling around, trying to find our way forward. Uh, yeah, when you read about these things, they kind of sometimes they seem right. Sometimes you're not sure. Sometimes you come to the beast. Other times you think, yeah, I've got other things to do. Yeah, that blindness is really a problem. Uh, it doesn't kind of it, it stops us from really taking this path as seriously as we probably should, yeah, because we can't really see what's going on here. So this is the big problem in samsara, the ignorance, the avidja. And then on the other hand, you have the craving, which fetters us, ties us to existence. So on the one hand, you are blind, and on the other hand, you are tied to the samsara, which goes around with just dukkha upon dukkha. Suffering, moving around from one life to the next one. This dual thing yeah, of craving and ignorance is a very problematic. Yeah, and this is what we, what, what we have to deal with. So these are the decoys uh, in this particular case. He has domesticated male deer, but um, Bikibodi has a decoy here, I think. Yeah. Um, the person who wants to help keep the herd of deer safe is a term for the Buddha, yeah? the realized one, the perfected one, the fully awakened Buddha. Uh, the Buddha comes along yeah? and the Buddha really exists only for one reason, because he has compassion for beings. Uh, and this is very powerful insight to understand this about the Buddha, because uh, the Buddha has finished, he has already reached the end of the path. He has gone all the way. He knows what's going on. The Buddha doesn't really need to do anything more. He could just sit down and enjoy himself for the rest of his life in deep meditation and then pass away peacefully and happily. But instead, he exerts himself in the world to help everyone. So the Buddha is motivated 100% by compassion. There's no other motive because he has already overcome suffering. There's no other reason why he does things apart from what being motivated by compassion. Uh, yeah, there's no sense of self. The Buddha doesn't do this because he wants to aggrandize himself, anything like that. Uh, and this is such a beautiful thing because if you are motivated entirely by compassion, uh, it means that your teaching, the way you describe the Dhamma, is going to be entirely pure. Uh, there's no vested interest for the Buddha. He doesn't do it for any kind of self. Uh, enrichment or anything like that or yeah i want to have disciples he doesn't care about those things at all purely out of compassion and it makes the teachings very very pure there's nothing in there for the buddha at all so this is a very it's important point yeah he wants he wants to help you that's the only reason why he does this because he knows that he has the solution he knows he has the recipe to get out of this thing how can i help other beings this is the idea of a Buddha. A Buddha is a natural phenomenon that arises in the world at, uh, at certain intervals, yeah? Because occasionally one person is able to make that breakthrough and see reality as it actually is. Uh. The safe and secure path that leads to happiness is the term for the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right thought, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right stillness you can use immersion if you like immersion but i prefer stillness personally here 
So, mendicants, uh, I have opened up the safe and secure path to happiness and closed off the wrong path, uh, and I have got rid of the male and female decoys. Out of compassion, I have done what the teacher should do who wants what is best for the disciples. Here are these roots of trees. Here are these empty huts. Practice absorption. Jayati. Mendicants, don't be negligent. Don't regret it later. This is my instruction to you. Beautiful. Yeah, this is what I all I can do. I can only teach you. Now it is up to you to make sure you practice accordingly. Yeah, go to the empty huts, go to the Buddhist societies, and go to wherever you can. Yeah, to build up your understanding of what is going on. And as you do that, yeah, then you practice absorption, jayati. Jayati is the word which means to meditate. It's directly related to jhana. That's why he has practice absorption. Don't be negligent. This is urgent. We don't know how long the teaching of the Buddha is going to be around. Buddhism, Dhamma, is impermanent, just like anything else in the world. It will be here for a while, then it will disappear. And then somewhere in the future we'll come back again when someone else realizes the same truth. But we don't know when, when that's going to be. It could be a long, long time before it comes back. Now is the opportunity. Now is the chance. If you come to the end of your life and you feel that you have not taken the opportunity yeah, to the best of your ability, then you may die and you may feel a sense of regret when you die. here, Because you had the chance, you didn't take it fully. Now it is. Now is the time to do this. This is my instruction to you. Yeah, this is what the Buddha says to his disciples. That is what the Buddha said. Satisfied, the mendicants were happy with what the Buddha said. <laughs> so there you are. This is this beautiful sutta, uh, the Dveda Vitaka Sutta. And uh, it shows you again, you can see how so many suttas that show you the full path. Yeah from the very beginning, how you start out, how you purify yourself, uh, all to the very end, uh, and then added in a few similes just for good measure, just to kind of give us an extra thing here. And this is very often how the Buddha teaches, uh, very comprehensive, everything is included. Uh, and uh, I don't know, it's, I, personally, you know, you, it's, if you understand what's going on here, it's actually very beautiful and very powerful in so many ways. Uh, anyway, enough for now. <laughs> so, Please have a nice lunch together and keep on enjoying yourself. And then we'll see you back again at 2 o'clock.